Hello, and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. My name is Dr. Ade Adamson, and I'm a board-certified dermatologist and the chair of the Drug Pricing and Transparency uh, Task Force. And today I want to talk with, uh, with an expert about uh, prioritizing physician's judgment in patient care and how we can respond to uh, non-medical switching patterns that we're seeing out in the United States. Right now, we are seeing payers driven primarily by concerns of, of high cost of specialty drugs, implementing programs utilizing exclusions of certain drugs or mandated drug substitutions, also known as non-medical switching, or incentive to switch medications. This raises serious concerns regarding access to treatment, the patient-physician relationship, and medical decision-making. And to that end, today on this podcast, we plan to explore the impact of non-medical switching on patients and dermatologists and uh, try to figure out what we can do as dermatologists, as well as what the AADA is doing to address patient and dermatologist concerns. On today's podcast, I am pleased to have Dr. Brent Moody, here to discuss with us some of these challenging uh, issues uh, that dermatologists are facing. Dr. Moody, would you please uh, introduce yourself to the audience and let them know kind of what your role is at the AAD, and we'll start there. Great. Thank you. I appreciate everyone's interest in this important topic. And my name is Dr. Brent Moody. I'm also a board-certified dermatologist. I practice in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm part of a large multi-specialty group in Tennessee. And I currently serve as the chair of the AAD's Patient Access and Payer Relations Committee. And uh, we have a very robust committee with uh, board-certified dermatologists representing all aspects of dermatology, from medical dermatologists, surgical dermatologists, dermatopathologists. We have experts in, like Dr. Adamson, in drug pricing, and we have experts in all aspects of dermatology. And our primary mission is to ensure that dermatology patients have access to care, hence the name in our title, patient access. And then the payer relation part comes in when we need to interact with payers, uh, and this is primarily going to be private payers, when access issues come up. So issues like we're talking about non-medical switching, it's right in our mission statement is something we've been dealing with for several years. Some folks in the field have noted that there's been an issue with certain insurance companies. As an example, in January 2021, Cigna excluded Cosentix from its formulary and didn't automatically grandfather in people that were stable on Cosentix, but they instead had these patients go through a prior approval process. And now this is known as you know non medical switching. And it's something that a lot of people are dealing with in dermatology. Dr. Moody, why do you think it is that payers are now mandating drug substitutions, their formularies? Why are we seeing that more often now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Great question. So just to clarify, when we talk about non-medical switching, it's exactly what you said. It's when a patient's medication is switched not because of a lack of efficacy or the physician thinks that a change needs to be made for a medical reason. It's generally going to be driven by a formulary decision 
made by an insurance company. So as you said, a carrier drops a certain drug and the expectation is that the patient will switch to another drug. And when we're seeing this more often, you mentioned the one with Cigna and Cosentix, but we've seen it with other carriers and other products as well. We're primarily seeing this in the higher cost drug space to sort of set the stage. Payers, both public, such as the Medicare program and private payers alike, are seeing that a relatively small number of medications are driving their pharmaceutical costs. So it's these few really high cost drugs that are uh, getting their attention. So in dermatology, that's going to be biologics for psoriasis or atopic dermatitis, things of that nature. Uh, you can imagine in the oncology space, it would be you know immunotherapy and some of the newer uh, anti-cancer drugs. So they're figuring out ways to try to control those costs. And one of the ways they do it is by having a narrow formulary. When we interact with the companies, we don't get any sort of proprietary information. So we don't know why they're picking a certain drug over another. They have made that decision. My belief is it's probably, as you said, for financial reasons, but we're not privy to the exact details of that. Right, exactly. And it's not necessarily, you know, them switching drugs, uh, um, you know, within classes, uh, across classes. Um, sometimes it, uh, it, it seems as though um, they're is not a defined uh, reason outside of you know financial ones where patients are mandated to switch to um, or even switch back and forth between different biologics. How do you think that these payer mandated uh, substitutions or non-medical switching impacts uh, dermatologic uh, care? Have you heard from a dermatologist or experienced yourself and the patients having poor outcomes related to having to have a mandated uh, drug substitution? So we do have information about that. There is some published information, some articles that suggest that as a, particularly in the psoriasis space, as a patient gets switched from one biologic to the next, that their likelihood of success will diminish with each successive uh, treatment. Uh, so that's been published. And what we did, when I say we, the academy did, is we actually sent out a survey to a lot of the dermatologists who were known to be prescribers of biologics and asked for their experience with this non-medical switching and how it's impacted their patients and their practices. We're still going through that data, but some preliminary analysis indicates what we expected and what you would expect. It's not been favorable. So you have someone, meaning a patient, who is stable on therapy. They have nothing to gain by switching therapy. So the best that that patient can hope for is they don't get worse. So take a psoriasis patient, let's say they're at goal, whatever that goal is on drug X. If they're forced to switch to drug Y, like I said, the best possible outcome is they stay at their current goal. So there's no upside potential for them switching. There's only downside potential. So we heard lots of stories from the dermatologists who filled out the survey who said just that, you know, patients were doing great and now they're not doing great. So these are the kind of outcomes we want to avoid for our patients. And so we're going to try to take this data and, and put it in a way that we can go to the payers and say, look, here's the unintended consequence of this action. 
So that's on the patient side. On the practice side, it's very disruptive. These changes tend to occur all at once. So you make a notification, hey, in 90 days, we're dropping the drug, whatever. That means that between the time you get the notification and that change takes place, you have to identify in your practice all of the patients taking drug X, figure out, well, of the drugs on the formulary, which one is the next best drug for that particular patient? You have to get them into the office and make the switch. So that's a very burdensome process that occurs on short notice. Or you have the option occasionally to appeal. So some of the companies will give you appeal rights to continue on the current drug for another reason. And of course, as we know, prior authorization is a huge burden as well. So there's no benefit to the patient or the practice in any of these switches. Yeah, and not to mention the financial burden uh, related to all of the uh, the man and woman hours that it takes to go through prior offs, through the offs. And there's, there's a ton of research out there showing that that actually also has a cost uh, a, as well. And you mentioned from a patient perspective that the best they could hope for, you know, is to stay stable. In some of our preliminary reports by the AADA or our preliminary data, the number one downside that folks are experiencing is the loss of efficacy, right? The lack of effect. And there are even a number of folks that are getting worsening of their symptoms, you know, including those getting worsening symptoms related to their psoriatic arthritis. And so, you know, these kind of decisions that are, are being made are potentially having a detrimental outcome uh, to uh, our patients first and foremost, as well as our practices as well. And ultimately, this could lead to increases in healthcare costs if uh, patients end up having more severe disease, perhaps maybe even ending up hospitalized or needing more intensity in treatment because of uh, this seemingly arbitrary um, mandated uh, medical substitution on pa- with, for patients that are you know, completely stable. Absolutely. Potential to put it another way, what you just said, the least cost-effective medicine is one that doesn't work. So if we give a patient something and it doesn't work, it doesn't matter what the cost of that is, that was all wasted money. So part of the problem is taking someone from an effective therapy, putting them on a therapy which may not be effective. It paradoxically could, could raise costs, absolutely. There's no question about that. In addition to, again, disease severity, is that patient going to have more office visits? Are they going to miss more work? Like you mentioned, sorry, after arthritis, is that going to affect their job performance? I mean, this, there's a whole lot of downstream issues that come from the diseases that we treat as dermatologists. And we're primarily talking about psoriasis, but we could easily talk, be talking about atopic dermatitis and parents who have to miss work to take children to doctors or care for their children's skin, missing school. So it encompasses the entire age range of patients we treat. So this is a broad, broad issue. And it's one of the reasons the the AAD is so uh, focused on it currently and why we're doing so much to try to advocate for our patients in this matter. So that leads me to my uh, next question. And we sort of 
touched on some of the positions of the AADA, but um, what is uh, the position of the AADA on, you know, payer-mandated drug substitution at this point? So we have a position statement that deals with this. Actually, it's currently undergoing revision based on this latest round of non-medical switching that we're seeing. And um, it's something that all of our members can read. It's a lengthy document, as position statements tend to be. To summarize, it really emphasizes the primary purpose of what we do is to make our patients better. So all of the position statement that we have focus on what can we do to make sure the patients get the care they need in the most effective manner. And so that's really kind of where we're aiming. And the position statement is called patient access to affordable treatments. And and it deals with a lot of these issues, not just uh, non-medical switching. It deals with prior authorization. It deals with formulary issues. And so, you know, we have a very robust position. But again, it basically says we need to make sure we're doing what's right for the patient. Exactly. And it's uh, important for listeners to note that uh, this position statement that's undergoing revision is specifically part of that revision is updates on the studies on the impact of non-medical switching on uh, patient care so that uh, we include this latest strategy that some insurance companies are using in order to limit access to drugs that are life-altering and sometimes life-saving for some of our patients. So Dr. Moody, what is the AADA doing to advocate to payers on this issue currently? And how can dermatologists and you know, the academy engage with payers in order to limit some of the possible downsides of these kind of formulary changes? So the, the Academy routinely interacts with payers on a whole host of issues. For many of the national payers, we have regularly scheduled update calls. And that may be every quarter with some payers or twice a year with others. So we have taken the position that we need to be partners and we need to have good working relationships with the payers. So uh, we worked really hard to get in a position where if we want to speak to a payer about an issue, they will grant us a meeting, usually when we want it. So we, we do have open dialogue with all of the, the payers, and we'll take these issues to them. We'll explain to them, you know, our position, why we're saying what we're saying. To be honest, they don't always agree with us, and we don't always agree with them. But we do work hard to make sure that at least we have open communication and they understand our positions. Uh, Some of the payers, some of the large national payers actually have dermatologists who serve uh, one of their medical directors. These companies all have multiple medical directors. So we're fortunate in that we have someone, at least when we're speaking to, they understand what we're talking about. They understand the disease state. They speak our language, so as it were. So we're fortunate that we have those resources available to us. So uh, that being said, we also are very firm. We advocate on behalf of our patients. And when we disagree with the insurance company, we let them know. We don't agree with what they're doing in some particular instance. So that's the the main thing we do, uh, our position statements. We build coalitions. We work with other groups. In the psoriasis uh, situation, we work with the National Psoriasis Foundation. So we'll interact with other patient-based advocacy groups. 
because sometimes they can actually be more effective than physician groups because those groups who advocate for patients is the patient's or the patient's employer who is the customer of that insurance company. Dermatologists, we are not their customers. They need us because they need us to care for their patients. But we always make sure we get the true customer involved as well, because that can be actually more powerful voice than, than our voice. So they what we do and what the patient advocacy groups do complement each other nicely. Yeah. And um, uh, also other physician groups as well, other specialties that are going through some of these challenges, um, say rheumatology, oncology in particular, can also serve as uh, allies in advocating for patients to get access to um, you know, these uh, ki kinds of drugs. And I know that AAD often interacts with some of these other specialty organizations in these areas of shared interest, this being one of them. Absolutely correct. We work on coalition building with other impacted specialties as well. And the ones you mentioned would be the primary uh, groups that we interact with on these issues. And some members of the Academy have mentioned this idea of payers grandfathering in patients that are on specific medications. Um, this is particularly an issue for patients that uh, say are on drug plans where the formulary is constantly changing. What is your opinion on the, this kind of suggestion? And uh, do you think payers are interested in you know, this idea of if you're on a drug and it works, you should stay on it? Yeah, we, we have made that argument and we think that makes sense that a, a stable patient who is happy with the drug they're taking you know, in the absence of a medical reason to switch, um, should be allowed to continue that without any undue burdens, meaning they don't have to pay an additional amount. They don't get put into a different copay tier based on staying on that drug. So the patient should in no way suffer by that decision to stay on. So grandfathering is a way to do that. It's something that we support. So then, but sometimes the carriers just have not been interested in that approach. I think my perception is that their formulary is their formulary. And if you're not, you're either on the formulary or not on the formulary. So we've not had a ton of success with that, but that would be a, what would seem like a simple solution to this problem. And if you have, again, we're, we're talking about psoriasis. Let's say we have two psoriasis drugs that based on the best available medical science, we think are probably equivalent. So for a new biologic patient, it might make sense. Let's start them on the formulary drug. You know, if, if the payer has a, a reason to pick that drug, but let's not force the person who's on the other drug to switch. I think that would be probably the easiest way to minimize the burden on both the patient and the dermatology practices. So for, for those out there that are going through this issue, what can a dermatology practice do when they don't agree with a payer a mandated drug substitution? Is the process similar to prior authorization or step therapy or any other barrier? What would be your advice to dermatologists that are going through this? So step one is to figure out what process is available to 
you and your patient. Most of the time, there is a, an appeal process available. It may be burdensome. It's going to be paperwork. It's going to be like a prior authorization or a step therapy process, as you mentioned. So that would be step one. So the first thing would be to sort of look at your patient's situation. And if that patient really absolutely needs to stay on that drug, go through that process. Uh, that's what the individual physician can do to advocate for an individual patient. From a system-wide we would like, we meaning the academy, we would like to hear about your experience with that because we are collecting data on that as well. I mean, part of the survey we did was, you know, well, what does this mean for your practice? So on the AAD website, you can go to uh, the patient access and payer relations basically has a, a portal where you can go in and type in your issue and tell us what's going on. Obviously, don't include any patient-specific information, but we're collecting this information, so we want to hear, so we can go back to the payers, because they may not be aware. They may make the switch and honestly not be aware what the downstream consequences are. So we want to take that information to them so they're aware. So do what's best for that patient, but let the academy know. You can use the portal, or you can just call the academy and say, I need to speak with whoever's in charge of non-medical switching. And they'll put you in touch with most likely one of our staff liaisons, a, a fellow named Lou Terranova. Lou knows a lot about this topic. He's on every call we have with every payer and he can get the information from you and get that to the committee so we can then take that to our next scheduled payer call. Yeah, and um, there's an email address for this as well privatepayer yep. at aad.org. And at the aad.org, there's also a private payer appeal letter generator. And mm -hmm. uh, we also have a prior authorization letter as well for various different you know, drugs that um, dermatologists often have trouble getting for their patients because of the barriers that are put up in place. So I want to make sure that the, the listeners are, are aware of that as well. And there's also, you know, the fact that in this political climate and with the rising cost of medications, that lawmakers are increasingly having more influence on how policies are put into place for how drugs are and drug pricing is, is regulated. So, you know, being engaged with your local or regional elected official is also a space in which dermatologists can advocate for, for their patients as well. Yeah, absolutely. Other committees at the AAD are aware of this issue. You know, we have state policy committee that focuses on state issues and spearheads our efforts at state levels. And so that's an avenue to take. Our congressional policy committee is also aware of this issue. So as, as we have these overarching issues that touch many areas of our advocacy efforts, uh, we all work together in that. And so we have we have routine calls, various committee chairs, so we all kind of can put the pieces together. So we, we advocate with the payers to get them to do what's right. If we need lawmakers to pass legislation to encourage them to do what's right, you know, we, we sometimes think about that effort as well. Legislation is a long and difficult road, so it's nice if we can just convince the payer, hey, what you're doing doesn't make sense. Let's rethink that. That's a much better solution than trying to go the legislative route, which sometimes is successful, but can take forever. I don't think any of our listeners would be surprised to learn that the political process doesn't always work smoothly. 
So do you have any parting thoughts, Brent, about this aspect of getting patients access to help them with their, their skin disease? Yeah, I think to, to summarize this, pay close attention to any communications you get from the insurance companies. They are required for the most part to give you notice of an impending switch. And if it's done correctly, if it's going to be done, it needs to be done correctly. They need to notify the physician of the change. They also generally should notify the patient. Now, we're all used to getting junk mail and people may just trash it, and not even open the letter. So on the practice side, you know, make sure whoever opens your mail, if they see a letter that has to do this, that, that it gets to you so you know what's going on. So that's step one is to be informed. Step two is figure out, like we talked about earlier, what do I need to do for this individual patient? Because that's, that's the problem I need to solve today. And then step three is let the academy know what's going on. We are only as effective as the knowledge we have. So if something's going on out there and our members don't tell us, there's nothing we can do about it. So I would really encourage you when you're facing these issues, let the academy know so the right people can start working on those issues. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really important, especially that last point that we don't know what we don't know. And uh, there are multiple different ways in which members of the academy can uh, reach out so that uh, we are made aware of some of these issues related to drug pricing and pay relations. So I want to thank you, Dr. Moody, for your time and your expertise in this area and your commitment to helping patients and dermatologists in this arena. My privilege. It was a great conversation. And I want to thank the audience for uh, listening to the Dialogues in Dermatology podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Todd Schlesinger, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcasts. We hope you enjoy these new options for listening to dialogues and the increasing content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.